2: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Rory Sutherland's On Brand Podcast, brought to you by Alf Insight. In each episode, we talk to the big names from the world of advertising, marketing, and media to dissect and debate success, ingenuity, and the future possibilities for our industry. And today, as a special privilege, coming to us from Portland, Oregon, our guest is Greg Hoffman. For over 27 years, Greg held marketing design and innovation leadership roles at Nike, including time spent as the brand's CMO. And after retiring from his role, he decided to write a book to share his experiences of creating campaigns for one of the biggest brands in the world. And so I'm delighted that he's with us now to tell us more about it. So I remember reading your book. I read your book some time ago before we had this uh, podcast. Uh, The book's called Emotion by Design, by the way. And the way you first got your first job at Nike was fantastically kind of serendipitous in the sense that you were at, I think the Minneapolis School of Design and you had no particular intention of going into the commercial world. Uh, In fact, I think your dream was to become a designer for a kind of art center or something similar. So tell us the wonderful story where, if I remember rightly, it was quite a while ago, I read your book when it first came out, you borrowed a car or was it a motorhome? It was something fantastically crazy. Tell us that story. Absolutely. You know, yeah, I was headed to
0: more of a career in the contemporary art world, designing galleries and exhibition spaces and, and programming. That's kind of the trajectory I was on. And, um, you know, I had gotten this coveted internship uh, at the Walker Art Center in Minneapolis, right? Which at the time was this cutting edge gallery that was producing amazing exhibitions. So that was where my head was at. And then one day a friend came out to me and said, hey, there's this, you know, he just had a sheet of paper with a few words on it. And it said Nike design internship. And uh, quite frankly, I was indifferent. I had a huge love affair with the brand, but I didn't see that as a place where, okay, I wanna spend my career uh, at Nike. With that said, I decided to dive in and apply for that too because it was a summer internship and I felt, well, that would be a great way to spend a summer, right? And uh, lo and behold, I end up getting that internship, but I am absolutely dead broke. I mean, I don't have a dollar to my name. And so my parents, You know, I'm from a family of seven. There wasn't a lot that we had, but um, they were so generous. And they ended up uh, letting me borrow their van. And this was, um, you know, a conversion van with airbrush artwork on the sides and poker tables inside and a couch that folded into a bed. And so, yeah, I drove that van from Minneapolis to Portland, 27 hours. And the other issue was, since I didn't have money or a place to live, I slept in that van in the Nike parking lot for three nights because I had to wait till I met people to figure out like how I was going to live and where. And so anyways, you know, and it does speak to that idea of resilience and resourcefulness. And certainly at that age, you know, you don't know any better, but to to go forward. And so that's, that's how I happened to find my way into Nike and Obviously, I would come back to Minnesota to do the Walker Art Center internship, but I would actually leave that early, which was unheard of at the time. You just didn't do that. But the draw, uh, the emotional draw to come back to the swoosh was just too powerful. I just couldn't turn it down. What hooked you in a way? You know, it had started. Actually, way back when I was 14, I got my first pair of Nike sneakers, the Air Force Ones, you know, for high school basketball. But that same year, actually, Nike released the I Love LA commercial, partnering with Chiat Day. And it was unbelievable to see this on TV. You've got this singer Randy Newman in a convertible driving down LA with all these athletes coming out of storefronts and running on the street. And so that blew me away. And then, of course, um, when I was in college, my college apartment, I had the Michael Jordan wings poster on my wall. So every time I came in the door, there was Michael staring at me. And there was a quote underneath it that said, no bird can soar too high if he soars with his own wings. And so these inputs into my mind were starting to take effect. I just didn't know it yet. But of course, Once I spent some time at the brand and learned just the unbelievable reach and influence that they had in the world, I just couldn't pull away.
2: And you had a fascinating background because you grew up as an adopted uh, mixed-race child with, as you said, seven children. Were your adoptive parents artists themselves? You know, they weren't, but they absolutely invested in
0: my passions. And, um, you know, just to illustrate just how supportive they were, um, I shared a, a small bedroom with my two brothers. So imagine there's three beds in this bedroom, and they took one of the walls in that bedroom, and they put a wood picture frame around the edges of the entire wall, painted it white, and said, Greg, this is your mural. You can paint, draw anything you want on this. And that really became, you know, as I like to say, the mural of my imagination. And I had an affinity and a fascination with logos and brand marks at that time, whether they were rock bands or sports teams or food and beverage logos. And I would draw them all over this wall. And that kind of set me on this path. But to your point, I always say that you know art and design was really, really an escape from reality in some ways, because I did grow up in an all-white environment, suburb, and School community. And so I leaned heavily into art and sport, these two twin passions. And it just happened to be that Nike unbelievably uh, combined those two in just, uh, you know, uh, cultural and brand
2: defining ways throughout the world. Does that spring from Phil Knight, do you think? Or is it just something that miraculously happened? Well, I, I do. I think that spirit of
0: entrepreneurship and invention started in the beginning with the co-founders, right? The coach and the athlete. And certainly from the beginning, all the way back to that orientation for the internship that first day. And you learn about a Bill Bowerman using his wife's waffle iron to create rubber outsoles for running shoes. Like that's what you're met with immediately. And of course, Phil selling product out of the back of his car. So you can imagine the incredible effect that that has when that's where your culture starts, culture of risk taking and never playing it safe, and those are carried all the way through
2: over the decades. I mean, it's interesting. It, it probably doesn't seem like an advantage at the time being a mixed race child in a city which is probably predominantly Swedish, I think, ethnically. That's right, isn't it? But I mean, from, I think Chris Rock had a very similar um, uh, upbringing. As um, I, I think, you know, he was more or less transferred to an all white school. And at the time, it's probably really difficult. But in later life, do you realize that that if you like one foot in, one foot out position in any society is actually creatively hugely advantageous? I don't think you can be completely alien to the society in which you operate, but being slightly detached doesn't hurt. Is that fair? Certainly
0: in our line of business, if you will, where I think curiosity and empathy and other traits are just so central to, you know, creating the great work that we do. Um, and and so, yeah, I mean, being somewhat of an outsider, as you said, um, but finding belonging in sports and creativity. And then, you know, yes, you realize later on, as I moved through my career, that I was drawn to use my position and platform to do what I could for, you know, others that you maybe see having that same experience, right? Um, And um, kind of using what influence you have to, you know, um, build a better future for those folks. So of course you draw upon all of that in these creative pursuits. Um, So that's why I, I don't have regret, if you will, with that said, I'm quite happy that my own kids are growing up in a different time uh, with a different level of empathy for how others. You know, you, you can never assume that someone else is living the same way in your world. But you're right. Yes, your one foot in, one foot
2: out analogy is pitch perfect. It's also fair to credit Nike, where I, I think you mentioned this in your book, that Nike was very, very early in showcasing athletes of color. To an extent which, okay, it's fairly universal now, but at the time was much more radical and much more interesting, I think, and much more distinctive because they really were pioneers of this. That's right. And so that probably helped the brand chime as well. Is that fair? Well, no question. And and you know, for someone like myself, that's
0: searching for identity and 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 pride, if you will, in who I was in those early stages um, as a teenager, of course, seeing this brand in these commercials with Spike Lee and Michael Jordan or Bo Jackson and all this classic, iconic storytelling that obviously was, was selling a lifestyle and was building a movement. Um, but like within that, it spoke to a lot of other aspects of society, whether intentional or not. So um, it definitely had an influence on me and obviously set the trends for, you know, what we see others doing today.
2: I always feel that, you know, sometimes when you have 100 brands now supporting the Pride Festival in London, there is a little bit of me which goes, well, that's great. But where were you in 1984 Mm -hmm. when it was Peter Tatchell and three other campaigners who are treated as, you know, more or less bizarre outliers? And so there is this slight tendency where brands are quite good getting on a bandwagon a little bit too late to make a difference, you might argue. Um, But I think Nike does absolutely stand out there. And in a category, what's so fascinating about Nike is in a category which could become generic, Nike still stands out in terms of the way they promote themselves, what they do, a kind of, I suppose, a kind of courage but also their remarkable appetite. I mean, you did, you did, I think, an extraordinary case where there was a huge budget thing, where there was a gigantic court created in three cities in different corners of the world. Is that right? Mm-hmm. You know, there, there, there were sort of pieces of work at, at a scale which very few other organizations would do. What allows Nike to do that? I mean, is it to do with the structure of the ownership or the management? Because it's very, very difficult for large organizations to do those kind of things what gives it that backbone
0: well you know one i I would just say that um i think the world of sport never ceases to surprise us so it's always evolving always changing and, and yet it always it has this unifying effect on people and cultures no matter how different they are so so what a treat to be able to tell stories and create experiences around that now as far as culturally there's such a strong culture of risk-taking and not playing it safe. And so when you're in a culture where clearly you incentivize people to take risks, and what I mean by that is it's okay to fail, right? Failure isn't the end of the journey, right? And so I talk a lot about this concept of getting outside yourself and always you know, looking out in the world at points of inspiration and bringing that back inside the brand. And that is the way I think the brand has been able to create these unique trend-setting ways of engaging with audiences and consumers, whether it is you know, using LED digital courts, whether it's, you know, using augmented reality for the first time. So it's, I would say this, it's like, it wasn't just about looking out on the horizon and seeing emerging capabilities and platforms. It's the speed at which we would visualize and prototype what that could mean to us. And then putting that out in the world in a less than perfect way. Because I think too oftentimes people are obsessed with perfection and part of that is the fear of failure. And I don't think that's healthy in the arena
2: of creativity. It's interesting you mentioned that because colleagues of mine who've worked in Asia say that in Asia they will put things out slightly early. But what this means is by the time the Westerner is content with their perfect solution, the person in the East is on their third iteration. Mm-hmm. And that's a very, very interesting. observation. It's again, a counterintuitive observation, but, I, you know, because you'd expect everyone to say absolutely obsessive attention to detail. But the ability to, to go a little bit soon is really interesting. The other point you make, which is also wonderful and something you wouldn't necessarily expect from a brand like Nike, is you also make the point that some of your very best work was produced under constraints, that actually that some of the work you're most proud of was small budget work, where in some ways necessity was the mother of the invention. Do you have a particular favorite in that line? Well, you're right, because I think it's easy to
0: discount some of the concepts just given the the budgets and the demand creation dollars. But with that said, uh, some of the most important work in terms of the legacy of Nike marketing and advertising came from little to no budget. And I I look at the uh, Ronaldinho crossbar video that launched in 2005, and um, this is YouTube was literally just a year in the game, finding its legs, and um, you know this particular video was born out of you know it wasn't born out of a business brief or a communication brief, right? It was born out of conversations with a few people, and basically pretty simple. Ronaldinho is videotapes receiving a new pair of football boots, right? puts them on and from the center of the field begins to kick the ball, hit the crossbar ball coming back to his feet without touching the ground and hitting it again and hitting that crossbar again. And, and so, and I'll leave it up to the viewer to figure out like, well, how did he do that? Okay. But the bigger thing is this was the first film that hit 1 million, the first brand film that hit 1 million views on YouTube, which, People weren't really familiar at the time. And so I use that as an example, because before that, it was only a year earlier where the way you shared videos was simply emailing it to each other and basically shutting down. You know, you can remember these days where you were just locked out of being able
2: to send emails because you had these heavy files that a buddy sent you, right? So. And again, I mean, one of the obviously, you know, Ronaldinho's time isn't free, but you have right. that relationship with the Brazil team. And essentially, that was astonishing because, I, you know, I'm not into soccer at all or football, depending on what you want to call it. But I saw that back in the day. And um, I think that, you know, that is astonishing. And, uh, you know, the fact that I still remember it from those very early days of YouTube, we forget actually how uh, young YouTube is. And you could argue that, you know, today you have
0: user-generated content that's quite genius, where they're able to use the tools of the day to create amazing, uh, disruptive stories
2: like that. But back then, you know, it was quite revolutionary. It's very interesting that point you make about the link between art and sport. It only just occurred to me now that, of course, if you look back at the history of art and painting. The subject matter, I mean, racehorses would have dominated in 19th century Britain or fox hunting, but quite a lot of art was absolutely recording sport. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, there was this partnership between art and sport, which, you know, uh, for some reason, just maybe in the age of photography, people just forgot all about it. I don't know. Well, You're
0: exactly right. And I have a theory that it really, the Montreal 1976 Olympics was when photography kind of came in and started dominating the way you presented sports and athleticism. Because up until that moment, when you think of the Munich Olympics in 72, the 1968 Mexico City Olympics, You had the best artists and designers in the world expressing sport through illustration, through
2: iconography, and it kind of shifted in the 70s. Really, really interesting. And actually, what you did is really reclaim ownership and elevate it, which I think is exactly what always happens. You know, it's the whole thing that, uh, you know, one person saw photography and declared that painting was dead, and another person quite rightly spotted no no no, it's just it's it's not dead it's just no longer a depiction of reality in the same way and so you had everything from surrealism to cubism to everything else and i think in a way you did that with sporting art. i mean the wings poster you know which you you had on your wall as fantastic and it's also obviously extended to causes so it was you sitting next to colin kepernick i think is if i'm right which actually gave rise to a medium and a campaign which had an influence which, you know, I think it's fair to say goes beyond anything you could have achieved working at a you know an art centre or an art gallery. Sure, absolutely. And um I find it extraordinary when you think of the cultural power that brand has had. I mean, you ca- I can argue, by the way, that a lot of people have tried to copy it and done it badly. I think there's always the curse, you know, this happened a bit with Ogilvy and Dove, that it was a very, very appropriate adoption of what you might call a campaign, okay? And for a a brand which was entirely appropriate, as with Nike, and a lot of people thought that had to be the mother load of every single advertising campaign. And so you ended up with kind of candy bars telling you how to vote or whatever, which, which wasn't the original point. I think that is actually the curse of doing something brilliant like that, that you end up with slightly disappointing imitators.
0: Yeah, I think, well, what what happens, Rory, is that storytelling becomes the default. And quite frankly, there's so many other ways you can use your platform and your inspiration and innovation uh, to to make a positive uh, impact in the world. It doesn't have to be through a commercial, but that's what started to happen, right? And I think To your point, I often as I as you know, you might be watching uh, television and see a a film and it's clear that someone is trying to say something about the world and make a positive statement, but it's not till the end that you see the logo and you say, oh, well, I didn't make the connection. And that's why I always say you, you must be able to make the connection between what you sell and what the world needs. Otherwise,
2: it might not be appropriate or the right time to lean in. Actually, that's a brilliant distinction. I think it's a really, really tremendous and useful distinction. By the way, I mean, I'd be interested to know your opinion on things like remote working, because one of the chapters in your book is entitled Creativity is a Team Sport. And, um, uh, you know, you're absolutely insistent on the idea that actually, you know, this idea of the lone genius in the garret is to be honest, it's more of a, a fiction than it is a reality. And that particularly modern day creativity involves contributions from all. It, it's it's more akin to filmmaking than it is to poetry. Sure. I'd love to know your thoughts on that and your thoughts of new patterns of working as well, because this is obviously a you know an incredibly heated debate with everybody from Goldman Sachs demanding that everyone comes back. I think it is a debate where both extremes have got it wrong, by the way, um, and right. I have right. slightly missed the point. But nonetheless, I'd be very interested to know and and what you did particularly, because you you know you were there from twenty two, sure. so unusually you worked your way up to a super senior position, having started at the bottom without moving job, which is a different in some ways is a difficult thing to do because I- I've been at Ogilvy for thirty years, and you know for a time it doesn't matter what happens to you, you always have people who remember you when you're twenty three, which doesn't happen if you move job, of course.
0: <laughs> right right that's why when people you know want career advice i don't necessarily say follow my path because it's quite rare right to stay in one place for for that long you know and and so when i say creativity is a team sport first and foremost i don't mean developing a creative bureaucracy right we all know that a meal cooked by eight chefs is not going to be a good one so um, just, just wanted to put that out there. And so, you know, you know, this idea of creativity as a team sport in 2010, I moved into a newly created role where I had to take the marketing functions of advertising and brand communication of digital marketing and social media marketing and event marketing, all these different groups that have been working independently in their own silos And so I had to radically bring those together to figure out the best way to build creative chemistry without destroying like the fluency and culture that had been created over the years within each one as well. And so one of the things I talk about in the book, of course, and I drove my team mad, but in the early stages of trying to create that chemistry, I would show these clips of FC Barcelona at their height and um, when they were coached by Pep Guardiola because they would have games where they're passing the ball 40, 50, 60 times in a row without the other team touching the ball. And the only way that's possible is if you have total selflessness Right. Yeah.
2: I mean, watching as a Brit that almost seemed gratuitous, you (laughs) know, it reached a point where actually now you're just showing off. That's (laughs) right.
0: Like put the ball in a net for God's sake. Right. Yeah. I, 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 I'm with you on that. But it
2: was the most astonishing that even as a non-football fan, it was the most astonishing thing to watch. That's right. And
0: so what my point was, is like, you got to shorten your passes, we cannot have these long passes and handoffs between teams, right? Because ultimately, it's showing up in the marketplace. And our cons- the last thing the audience and the consumer has time for is to put it together for you. You have to connect the dots. And I didn't have, uh, Roy, I didn't get it all right in the beginning, right? In some ways, I was too obsessed with with creating holistic systems and everything had to be integrated and connected. And what can happen then is you pull some of the soul and emotion out of the stories you want to tell. So that's number one. Number two is, you know, like, look, I I think to create concepts at scale, it does require this buy-in that everybody's on the field together, right? And this gets back into that, creating a diverse and inclusive environment and team. Because at the end of the day, and I think this is reflective in the best work that's coming out in the world, are the agencies and brands that are able to not only create diverse representation, but if it's just by the numbers, well, what's the point? The point is is that for it to be represented, people need to be able to show up and activate their lived-in experiences and perspectives and be able to bring that into the work. Back to the Colin Kaepernick work. You know, in 2017, when I'm at a lunch with him on the Nike campus and he doesn't have a team to play for and I'm hearing what he's saying, I'm allowed to bring my life experience and perspective into the room and look through that lens. And so that is part of this creativity as a team sport chapter is is really starting to you know maybe look at diversity and inclusion within the creative
2: process and building a culture a little bit differently on that and also interesting because i suppose the standard sporting tendency is always to show off people at the peak and this was a really interesting case of identifying with someone who has he had a knee injury as well is that right at that time, by the, the fall of 2017,
0: he was in unbelievable shape. So it was a bit, uh, it's just very surprising that um, here's someone who, who was absolutely a starting quarterback and um, had paid the ultimate sacrifice on that. But of course, I'm, I'm in the room seeing someone who's also biracial and is also adopted by a white family and who also can't really separate that personal journey from the professional one. And so that's why when I say, you know, we didn't use, you know, focus groups. Well, why not? Because we had a team inside the room that represented that level of diversity to get to a place where you could objectively evaluate the work, right? Because I will say, if you can't pull back far enough, then that is where you're going to get into things that maybe feel a bit off-brand or
2: tone-deaf. So I suppose it's a little difficult being in Portland, Oregon, which is, let's say, an outlier for American city in terms of its own politics to an extent. Did you ever, I mean, there's the famous quote from Michael Jordan, which is Republicans buy sneakers too. Did you ever get internal pushback saying, look, this is alienating people? 48% 48% of our potential customers, uh, do you think this is time to stop?
0: No, because remember, we're. I, I want to be clear that we're standing on the shoulders of other great work um, across a multitude of causes, but specifically fighting for racial justice and equality. And you know, all you have to do is go back to um, 2006 and the Stand Up, Speak Up campaign, when racism became really prevalent in European football. And Thierry Henry was really the catalyst for that campaign, right? Great campaign between White and Kennedy and Nike. Um, and so, and then you have the equality campaign of 2017. So, the, by, by the time 2018 comes around, we have conditioned ourselves and we are um, behaving in a way that's authentic to who we are. And so, you're not running into those necessarily those internal debates you know the debate is understanding and making sure that the lens and the platform you speak through is sport because if you're not doing that then you really have to question why you and so that's why i say whether you're an automobile brand or a food and beverage brand or a cosmetics brand you have to figure out a way to relate it back to and connect it to your sector. Otherwise, yes, it it
2: will come across as, um, you know, chasing cool, as I like to say. Yeah. I mean, interestingly, I think Gillette got it slightly wrong in that they... This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you
0: that's burrow.com slash acast. Burrow.com slash acast.
2: Obviously, they were uncomfortable with the best a man can get. Okay. But they went into sort of slightly extreme denial, which was almost an attack on masculinity, which had no connection to shaving or or skincare whatsoever. And I think that business of uh, essentially there's genuine interest versus borrowed interest. And I think that distinction often gets lost in quite a lot of purpose-led advertising. However, I will make a caveat about that, which is purpose isn't necessarily appropriate in consumer messaging, but purpose internally, in terms of your internal communication, is, I think, the distinction I always make is, look, France is about liberté, égalité, and fraternité, and that's what the French believe they're about. I'm not sure how how well they deliver it but let's let's debate that but you wouldn't use that as the slogan for the french tourist board okay um, because you actually go there so you can sit outside a cafe in the sunshine and so there is that question which is that i think it's absolutely essential for the people who are devoting 40 50 hours of their week to working towards this company to break down silos and to break down kind of Infighting and disputes over credit. Having that common purpose is absolutely essential. When it actually belongs in advertising, and when it doesn't, is a really interesting debate. I mean, uh, you know, it's it's complicated, but I think there is this interesting case of what you might call beware of cheap imitations. That people have taken what Nike has done, using the lens of sport, where it is an entirely credible spokesperson, and they've tried to do it for chocolate bars or whatever. And I'm not saying it's not impossible but the subject matter doesn't lend itself in quite the same way.
0: Yeah, no, well said. And I, I would just add to that. I mean, first first on the first point is, yeah, you, you have a, a generation of young professionals now who want to align themselves with the value system of a brand, even if it means working for a brand that might even have inferior product within that category. So it's just greatly important uh, on that. And then to your point, you know, at the end of the day, as a company and a brand, you—you um, you first and foremost, you, you have to be creating solutions that are satisfying real needs. And if you're shortcutting that or not necessarily doing that at the exceptional level, but you're trying to use your platform, you, then it might be a distraction,
2: right? Uh, well, I mean, you know, I have to admit, I've just bought an electric car. And the primary reason I bought it is because it's a really good car. Now, there, you know, there are, you know, undoubtedly, the environmental factors are not irrelevant to me. And indeed, having bought the electric car, I think I've become more environmentally conscious in the process of driving it around. It's one of those questions where actually attitude follows behavior in some ways. But you you make very interesting points in the book about cool, which is specifically related, I think, to the Air Force One, which is that essentially, you see quite a lot of people trying to buy cool or to contrive it. Whereas your argument is the Air Force One was cool, almost without trying.
0: Yeah, you're talking about a a sneaker that was designed in 1982. And yet 40 years later, it's the highest selling sneaker in the US by, by volume. But it's also continues to be the most influential shoe in culture. And so that's, a, that's not easy to do to create something that's aspirational and accessible to everyone, right? But it does start with the origin story that it was designed and built for basketball athletes unapologetically. And isn't it interesting that there's never been a commercial over the decades for this particular shoe, right? And I think that's quite extraordinary. And how it, it's managed um, to achieve this status is through, there's a variety of different functions and disciplines that work together to achieve that. But from a storytelling standpoint, you know, the rule was, is that, you know, we had to make sure that whatever story we're telling was authentic, that if there was a new colorway, that it was inspired by a particular player on a particular basketball court, in a particular year. Now, if you choose to wear that sneaker just for style, fine. But I think subconsciously, you know that you're sitting on the equity of all of that storytelling and authenticity from the game. And as I I said in the book, you know, a year after the shoe comes into the world, Moses Malone wins um, an NBA championship in the shoe in 1983. And what a validation, right? Um, and, um, so that's my point about authenticity as your cultural currency. And I would even say not only as brands, but as leaders, like as individual employees and look, I'm very much about having opposing forces in the room as you're trying to create great work. Cause on the one hand, I'm saying, make sure you get outside yourself and find the latest and greatest and unique, uh, technology and innovation and ways you can engage with the consumer. On the other side, I'm saying, don't chase cool. Remember who you are and what your purpose is. And that's okay to have those voices in the room at the same time. That's the whole
2: point. I think that's very, very interesting because I think the way in which marketing has split into conventional and digital has perhaps created two cultures, which both have an enormous blind spot. And I, you know, I know this, I started my first, I still consider myself a direct marketer. I started in direct marketing and I spent 15 years effectively, and it was a little bit of a commercial necessity, denigrating, you know, mass advertising and generally pointing out the extraordinary superior efficiency and measurability and quantification of direct marketing. And it took me 15 or 20 years to say, actually, it's both and not either or. You know, we naturally are kind of tribal and we naturally have an in-group and an out-group. And it took me a very, very long time. I mean, I knew deep down every time you wrote direct mail pieces for American Express, if there was advertising running, you got a much bigger response rate. So we knew they were complementary, And yet we couldn't resist. You know, I think it finally died in Ogilvy about seven years ago or something. Yeah, you know, people will probably tell me it's still alive. I'm probably just being naive. But by and large, it diminished a great deal from what I saw in the eighties and nineties. And so you have to have this "what's next" check. And one of my arguments is that the danger is if you purely base your competitive advantage on technology, you can be outmaneuvered in a fortnight. You know, all it takes is a change to the algorithm, a new piece of legislation, you know, whatever it is, and suddenly everything you thought you knew has changed. Whereas if you base your brand on fundamental human truths, the great advantage is that kind of psychological evolution is fairly slow. And you might then, as, as with that extraordinary case, you know, you have an enduring advantage then. And so actually going back to first principles fairly regularly, and having people in the team who do isn't a bad thing at all. You know, I mean, I often say I I once, one of my little proudest moments was persuading Google that the way to launch a new product was using direct mail. And all credit to Google, they're very, very astute. And I don't know whether they did it or whether they didn't, but they saw my point. Now, you know, at one level, that's the most ridiculous thing in the world. You have a company which has more data on individuals than is possibly imaginable. And my simple argument was that by sending people a letter, okay it said this is only something for a small group of select people Mm. in a way that digital media can't say and also my kids my kids are 20 when they get direct mail it's really exciting you you're old enough to remember an age just about you know where you were bombarded with this stuff actually direct mail now is actually quite exciting it's quite significant that's right and so everything you know the environment the context is always changing and so occasionally having a few lodestars and a few north stars where you say, yes, we can explore all this stuff, but we have to remain true to this undying principle. It's a balancing act, but I think if you can do it, it really, really works.
0: I am right there with you. And I I guess my only call to arms right now is there's so much focus on the word content that the word Ah. story and storytelling... Is I believe getting lost on this new generation because what is content, right? Yeah. And so my 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 point is even the most data-driven digital commerce offense, you're still using the the medium and the cadence to reveal something about your brand, even down to product descriptions and everything else. And I think too often it's just getting categorized as content to be distributed versus. Stories
2: to be shared. I just think words matter. And also, the word content effectively completes the separation, doesn't it, of media and message. It basically goes there's a media job, that's performance marketing, it's optimization of certain blah, 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 blah. And there's this just generic stuff called content. And of course, the most potent messages, I mean, many of the greatest Nike things were, of course, 48 sheet posters. Because there's something that a forty eight sheet poster or a ninety six sheet poster does, which you can't do in digital. And so this idea that you just generate content and you're completely unconcerned as to in what form or context it appears, it's a really disturbing completion of that separation between you know the the what you say and who you say it to and where. And that it worries me for that reason, but <laughs> part the else. It's a fancy word for just stuff isn't it? It
0: Yeah. and, and, And again, it's like we talked about earlier. It's like shorten your passes. The point isn't to get further apart. I don't know, someone who's successful in marketing that isn't thinking about the medium as they're creating the message.
2: I just don't think you can have that separation on that. I don't think you can separate them either. I I never understood why creative agencies and media planning were separated. It made no sense except to people in a managerial position who wanted to make sense of, you know, the organization, really. Yeah, that's right. And so back to your
0: second question, because then this gets back to, well, how do you build a culture when uh, you're either all virtual, you're hybrid? Um, It's probably pretty rare that you have an all in-house environment going forward. So this is where it's going to be really important to essentially publish your methodology, or you can call it your belief system, your values, but literally If you're not doing that, and you're leaving it to chance, then you're just going to have this eroding culture. And you're going to wake up one day saying, well, what do we even
2: mean internally? You did an interview with Stephen Bartlett, who's a wonderful guy, you probably remember the CEO podcast, right now, in his business, which is a social media business, he lays down very firm ground rules, which fascinated me, which is basically by default, we're all in on Monday, and we're all in on Friday. Now, that's the opposite of the standard you know tuesday wednesday and thursday some people make it into the office monday and friday will bunk off somewhere and his point is on monday we plan on friday we evaluate and we celebrate in between his tuesday wednesday and thursday he's quite a bit more fluid in between planning and evaluation well actually to some extent there is a value to people working in an environment of their choosing and sometimes that sociability and sometimes that solitude I jokingly said that the future of the office is to be half pub, half library, because I, I, you know, because I think, you know, actually what we want is not an average of those two. It's actually more of the two extremes. You know, there are certain things which you can, writing is something you can only really do in solitude, I find. Um, weirdly, I can do it in cafes. Don't ask me to make sense of this. I can write in cafes or on trains, but I can't write in the office. David Ogilvy never wrote anything in the office. But then there are other activities where you want actually very, very high voltage sociability, and actually getting the balance of the two extremes is actually the interesting challenge. I suspect. I, I like that balancing the two
0: extremes, and and you know what I'm curious about is what I've I've seen and learned and. Being a branding instructor at the Graduate School of Business at the University of Oregon and teaching both in person as well as virtual, right? Is what I found with the virtual sessions is it is a bit more inclusive in that it basically empowers different levels of comfort communicating, right? Because I don't think, you know, oftentimes you only reward the loudest voices and, you know, the use of chat, the use of other platforms where, and also rewarding people because English isn't everybody's first language, something I had to kind of figure out as an instructor. And so how do we take the best of that? And how does that come into like the physical environment where quite frankly, introverts don't oftentimes get the space
2: to go back and think about their answer? That's very, because actually we, uh, you know, okay, I mean, you couldn't survive in the ad industry without being quite quick on your feet, because, you know, but actually, to be honest, I'm okay at that, you know, generally, but there are the number of times where you realize that giving a snap off the cuff answer is actually better than giving a considered response and saying, I'll get back to you. Right. Right. I mean, You're absolutely right, by the way, which is the extent to which Zoom meetings, for example, might actually diminish hierarchy. There's no one sitting at the head of the table. No one has a corner office on Zoom. There's no territorial stuff going on. You might argue, does it actually help people who are non-neurotypical, for example, or culturally slightly outside the mainstream of the conversation? I mean, I know there were experiments fun enough in the very early days of computing where they held meetings anonymously over text because that's all you could do then. But actually they discussed things and you actually stripped out people's identity and everybody just typed what they thought. And what was certainly true was what arose through this process. I'm not sure you'd want to run a company that way exclusively, but what arose through this process was certainly points of view that never emerged if you had face-to-face meetings. You know, there was a candor there was a kind of you know a, a, an ability for junior people to i mean one of, one of the things i have to say it's not only ethnic or cognitive discrimination yeah. there's also age discrimination so i don't know if you know that scene in uh, i think it's margin call where jeremy irons comes in and Literally. says explain it to me as you would you know a small child or a labrador yes. okay Fantastic. and there is that interesting thing i noticed that when you get older You can actually say simple things. So if you're 55 or you're 50 and you say, actually, you know, the more you advertise, the more famous you are, the more famous you are, the more opportunities come to you. Okay, that's something which rather tragically a 55 year old can say because he's bringing it back home. Whereas a 25-year-old would find it difficult to say something which would sound kind of naive or platitudinous. And sometimes the job at the meeting is to say the old person thing, which is, you know, let's just keep this simple. Agreed. So there's some really interesting dynamics, which I think we need to explore.
0: Yeah, and then I because I illustrate a lot of these concepts in the book where so much of what we created over the years was a conversation in a hallway between two or three people. That's it. Again, no brief, no long drawn out process, just a conversation of people asking what if around a particular idea. And I think part of that is the human connection of being in the same room, right? And sharing that experience together. And so it's not that that can't happen in the virtual world. And again, I don't think we have the answers yet in terms of what's the optimal way forward. But with that said, I think, um, you know, I I, one thing I will say is, I do think there's a lot less bureaucracy and more speed. Because I I love my favorite trait that I always try to instill in any team I was leading with is speed. I don't like slow. And so I think things have gotten faster and more efficient. But the question is,
2: are they more innovative and creative as well i don't know well it it occurred to me that actually some of some of ogilvy's best work during lockdown was for dove and it was an anglo-canadian collaboration And I said, actually, at the time, I said, what you've got to remember is that if you tried to make that physical, if you tried to have the same collaboration in 2019, someone would have to approve the flights and the hotel stays. You know what I mean? There'd be a minimum cost of the collaboration before you'd even started doing any work of sort of 30,000. Now, that's not only the financial cost. It would then then you discover that one of the Canadian team had a bar mitzvah on the first day. Okay, so they couldn't come over for another week. And one of the things which I think is an invisible benefit of video conferencing is generally you can get people together in the same place and from different disciplines five times faster. And so I think that's a hugely underrated benefit of this.
0: We're just living in a world too, certainly you have to be able to operate at consumer's speed, which is moving faster than ever. Otherwise, they'll just go somewhere else. And so you just have to eliminate anything that's going to reduce your ability to operate in real time. It's, it's just the trick is how can you ensure that what you're creating is meaningful, insightful, and helpful as you're moving that fast? Otherwise, like it has uh, diminishing returns um, on, on your brand.
2: So I think you do have, and a lot of this is almost certainly your work, but building on other people's work is you have that wonderful strength in Nike in that you kind of know when something is a Nike ad, you know, that the consensus is probably pretty immediate, which, you know, there are many brands where you would still be debating certain aspects or qualities Whereas when you get there, you know. You mentioned it's one it's one of those magical brand properties which is very rarely achieved. You mentioned it as well with Air Force One, you know, one of those extraordinary brands, Coke obviously has it, you know, which actually defy demography. They're so big that actually, you know, as Andy Warhol said of Coke, you know, that you know, the president of the United States likes Coke, the bum on the street corner likes Coke, all the Cokes are the same, and all the Cokes are good that it's very, very difficult to do that. And it's a rare kind of thing, but my God, it's valuable when you do.
0: No question. And and you do have to constantly remind, you know, to make that last through generations of working teams and employees. So I do think there's a bit of putting it on paper in terms of what is a slightly objective way of being able to ask the right questions and use the right filters to achieve Ultimately, what you know is on brand and reaches that standard of excellence. And then at the end of the day, yes, there's a lot of subjectivity in that pursuit. But I am a big believer in making sure that you empower your teams with some set of overriding creative principles to do that versus, you know, all the powers held in a few veterans that have been there forever and they can, they just through instinct, they know when you've, when you've got a hit on your hands. And so
2: it's a bit of a combination of both. You know, I find that really fascinating that there is this sort of yin and yang thing going on all the time uh, in organizations. Uh, by the way, I mean, an interesting question, uh, you know, about a huge organization based in Portland. I suppose Boeing was historically in Seattle. Microsoft's in Seattle. One of the things we don't talk about enough, I think, is geographical discrimination. Mm which is you know if you think about it 90 percent of the american population either don't want to move to say new york or genuinely can't because they have children at school they have a wife or partner or husband who has a job you know in minneapolis you simply can't make that move and so one of the you know one of the benefits of slightly more flexible working it strikes me is that When I used to organize conferences, they used to say, and the conference cost 200 pounds. I used to say it costs 200 pounds if you're based in London, but it costs 600 pounds if you're based in Edinburgh, you know, and if you're based in New York, it costs 4,000 pounds. Right, right. You know, I think that ability to break down that distinction and also to call in expertise for short bursts of time, I think is really, really useful.
0: I agree. And that's why you see a lot of these small and large brands start to develop, creative studios in different points within the world, whether they're virtual or physical. That's not a choice. I think it's a mandate that brands have, to, if they want the best talent in the world, and to your point, create a more inclusive kind of approach to, you know, building their businesses.
2: You know, I mean, one great thing, I suppose, is that being based in Portland, okay, you know, it kind of denied you access to the obsessively metropolitan design talent that would flock to New York. But actually, probably it gave you an absolute privilege over attracting the kind of 50% of people who didn't want to do that or couldn't, you know, for whatever yeah, I reason. Think
0: you're right. Well, and now what you have is there's a, an explosion of, again, the outdoors and everything that the Pacific Northwest has to offer in terms of the natural environment and people getting back to nature and understanding its effect on your physical and mental well-being and using that as a recruiting tool. But to your point, Rory, look, for years, it was imperative that I traveled around the world to make sure that I was engaging in the most influential cities and with individuals. Otherwise, it would be pretty tough for me to be able to, like, if I'm not willing to find and seek kind of um, what's on
2: the edges, how am I going to ask others to try to achieve that? You would travel around effectively, I won't call it cool hunting because you've already dismissed that, <laughs> yeah. you know, that term, well, yeah. but effectively going and finding what was absolutely at the edge of uh, new thinking, new behavior, even to the point, I suppose, of occasionally almost discovering sport, new sports or practices. Yeah. And within that, getting a
0: greater and deeper understanding of how people live and relate to sport and their particular countries, right? And um, versus just sitting in one point in the world, and assuming that you can just share your point of view with no refinements. And so you know, there's a variety of different benefits. (laughs) To that. Did you ever get
2: your head around cricket? I've got to ask this <laughs> as a Brit. Did you go to? No, I just
0: remember uh, I just in the 90s working on a campaign with Shane Warren. That was about it. Um, and uh, of course, yeah, you're talking about something that's un- unbelievably relevant as well as influential in just a massive part of the world. But yet there's big portions of the world that just isn't
2: exposed to it. I have to say, this has been absolutely fantastic. I'll just end, actually, if you've got, only if you've got time, because you had this emotional moment when you actually reconnected with your biological parents. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. While I was writing the book, and unexpected,
0: right, I I had, long ago, we had looked for my birth parents and hit a wall. This is before 23andMe and Ancestry.com, right? So back then it was all done through back to direct mail. It was all done almost like the Pony Express, if you will. And so, yeah, as I was writing the book in April of 2021, I was just, um, you know, minding my own business. And I got a, a note through 23andMe, the DNA website from a woman who said that I was her uncle. And we dove a little bit deeper. And here's Rory, here's the Unbelievable thing. As I looked at her Facebook profile, I learned that, wow, she went to my high school and she also graduated with a graphic design degree. And I was like, okay, this is, and then as we got deeper that day, it turned out that she was actually my sister and her mom was my mom. Okay, so just like that, I had a doorway into like this unbelievable family tree on both sides. And all this art and design was prevalent through these generations. And so it answered a lot of questions that I had had about, you know, why do I have the passions I do or on that? And then, of course, it's super emotional because it opens up my connection to to being an African American and suddenly you're going all the way back to you know pre American civil war and you're learning about multiple generations and the struggles and journeys of your black ancestors and so and in some ways it's completely tied in to this book because so much of the book is about nature and nurture and so i had all these questions about where does where does my creativity come from and to have that answered over
2: the last years, it's just been incredible. That is absolutely fascinating. So you always, you you always had this little burning question, which is, you have something within you. Where did it come from? And then, as soon as you reconnected with this family, it suddenly became self-evident. Exactly, and then it, it also just validates the fact that my parents
0: spent all that time uh, fueling that passion. Because if they hadn't, it would have just lied dormant. And so that's my point. It's like we need to create the type of environments that draw out these hidden skills and passions that people
2: have that are in their blood, essentially. This has been absolutely, I won't take up any more of your time, um, but um, it's been absolutely marvelous. And I'd like to thank you once again. It's been a huge pleasure to speak to you. Just a reminder, and it's a really strong buy recommendation. The book is called Emotion by Design, and it's creative leadership lessons from a lifetime at Nike. And I can completely recommend you get your hands on a copy uh, wherever you can. Um, Obviously, it's available at Amazon. Um, There's also a Kindle version. Is there an audio book? There, there is, yeah. I spent the time and I, I did that audio book, yeah. So there you go, an additional plug by the, for the audiobook here, read by the man himself. Well, all I can say is thank you, Greg, once again. That's all for this episode of On Brand. Uh, the podcast is brought to you by Alf Insight. And for more information on powering your business growth, visit their website, which is alfinsight.com. That's alfinsight.com. Uh, the series is fantastically and expertly produced and edited by Ultimate Sound and Vision. And of course, to make sure you receive the next episode, do click subscribe. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, then tweak the algorithm a little bit by giving us a like. Thanks for listening and here's to next time.